I could think of many companies out there that I do not, that when I'm their customer, I do not feel like I'm being put first. And the difference is what systems and culture you put in place in your company. Like, are you really putting the right listening systems in place and tying this to the inner loop of your product creation process and your product support process and so on? And are you really putting listening to people at the center of it in in what you're creating and, and, and how you're sharing it? And if you're not, you're going to have a much harder time. Like if you create all the rest of the system, if you put finances at the center and listening systems as a bolt on it's going to be uh, it's going to be really hard to do that connection. So really build your processes, your practices, your culture around putting the people at the center. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Thank you for joining the discussion, and I hope you and your loved ones are staying healthy, safe, and well. Some quick updates. I'm very excited to share an upcoming Simply Tech live discussion on September 24th, 8.30 a.m. PST, featuring our main guest, U.S. Vice President of Manufacturing at Microsoft, Tracy Galloway. Tracy will be joining the discussion to highlight a new industry focus for the organization and the market impetus calling for transformations in manufacturing. Tracy will be highlighting key themes, including her experiences as a woman VP, why sustainability is a core pillar of focus in Microsoft's manufacturing industry vertical, and some novel approaches to accelerate culture change and education in cloud computing and AI across U.S. organizations. You can get more updates by following our page at linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Simply Tech Live. And now for today's discussion. Today's episode is a Simply Tech Live interview featuring my co-host Ali Mazahari and our guest Ed Essie. Ed is the Director of Entrepreneurship and Incubation in the Microsoft Garage, a program that delivers and drives a culture of innovation and is largely responsible for coming up with some very creative Microsoft AI products that exist today in the market in production. One of which is Video Indexer, a media AI technology that makes it easier to extract insights from videos. The product has won numerous design and innovation awards, including the 2019 National Association of Broadcasters or NAB product of the year, And Video Indexer brings together everything from facial detection, which I'm sure you've heard of in lieu of the recent deep fakes, to visual content moderation. It's a really cool way to see multiple AI models working within one solution and a great example of the types of ideas that can be brought forward by very intentionally designed innovation programming. Ed is a titan in the world of innovation and has spent his entire career focused on creating new things at startups and in the enterprise, as well as hiring people who can do this very well while creating programs that bring new ideas forward. Ed's been at Microsoft for almost 19 years now and brings with him a BS degree in computer science and engineering from MIT. We talked today with Ed deeply 
about how organizations are typically approaching machine learning and advanced technologies with focus on scale and optimization, but why the true focus should be on purpose. We talk about innovation as a culture and get into some depth around Ed's recent project experiences, including an AI solution for families of children with epilepsy that is helping to unlock real human experiences and create proximity. This is a discussion around AI and its most important subcomponent, empathy. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. And if you haven't already, please rate and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if that is your favorite way of consuming. It helps me continue to develop the show and create content that will challenge you and I both. Thank you for listening. And now we bring you Ed Essie. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on, you know, from where you're watching this live broadcast. I'm super glad today to have another great session with my co-host, Derek. And today we have a very special guest. And I know that we had to reschedule this, but it was well worth it. So definitely I would like to have Ed introducing himself. But before we get there, please make sure that you guys gonna subscribe to our page on LinkedIn. You can also follow Derek's profile on YouTube, which has all the recording of the previous sessions. And please make this session interactive. So if you have any questions, feel free to you know put it in the message box. And with that, Derek, I pass it to you. Yeah, I'm very excited for this episode just because, as everyone knows, we try to have some really great guests on the show. And this person specifically just has lit up so many different ideas in how I approach business leaders globally with discussions around innovation. So our guest, Ed Essie, Director of Intrapreneurship and Incubation at the Microsoft Garage. We're going to be talking about AI, we're going to be talking about empathy, and we're going to be talking about innovation. So Ed, please tell us, how are you feeling and what gives you energy today? Oh, thanks. Hello, hello. Uh, feeling really well today. Um, something that gives me energy is I got to spend the morning talking with the leader of a project I'm going to get to talk with you a lot about today, a project that is deeply, deeply based in empathy, and they're using machine learning every day to help the families of uh, children with epilepsy reduce the number and severity of their seizures. And this is gives me so much energy to be able to wake up and help people like this and help amazing people who are doing the work of helping helping other people. So it's really charged me up today. And I'm so excited to be able to speak with both of you and everyone on the end, end of this line about it. So thank you for having me on. So Derek, it's interesting. Before we start the show, Ed and I, we had a side chat. And one thing that we discussed was that, you know, there is always a common theme when you think about empathy and how people can relate to this work. So it's not just like saying, hey, I need to, you know, put more empathy in my relation with my family, with my coworkers, etc. But it's really, you know, how to understand this work. And when Ed was talking about his story that he's going to go and you know talk more about it. I could totally relate it based on you know what I went through with Sam and you know the story that we shared previously. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I, I can't wait. And there's so many people focused. You know, empathy is such a, a buzzword nowadays. It's I, think, I see it hashtagged everywhere. But we're going to get into that today. We're going to get into what it is and 
why it's so important to technology. So Ed, can you talk to us about what you do today? What is the Microsoft Garage and how did you get involved with this organization within Microsoft? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Microsoft Garage is, is a program that fosters a culture of innovation within Microsoft. So we try to provide opportunities for people to experiment, collaborate, and express their creativity through so many different hands-on ways of doing things. Our motto is doers, not talkers. So we're, instead of talking about it and teaching about it, we're always trying to create situations for people to actually get in the experience of using whatever they do to learn, to help others, you know, whatever they're trying to learn around innovation or, or in this world. And I got involved in this uh, I, I always saw myself as somebody who would be at startups, at starting up new ideas. And when I graduated college a while back, I was like, like date myself exactly. I graduated college in 2001 when the dot-com bubble burst. And uh, I remember the week before my finals week, I got this call, like your job offer, my job offer was rescinded. And then I got another job that was rescinded, got another job that was rescinded. I ended up working at a startup our big press release when we we're finally like sharing with the world what we did. You want to guess what date that was? Have I, have I told you this already? You have not. No, it was September 11th. So Jeez. Yeah, it was September 11th. And um, I think I was also uh, interviewing with a good friend of mine's company at, at that time. Uh, that was Enron. So just to kind of date, date uh, a lot of how this stuff began for me. And ended up, um, Microsoft was one of the only companies hiring. I've always been imagining myself like moving off into startups. And I think, you know, we have this company poll that is like, how many more years do you see yourself at, at Microsoft? And it used to be like zero to two. I've checked that box 18 times in a row, 18 years in a row. And the thing is, is the company has changed so many times over the years. And all throughout it, I've been able to work on creating new things. I've always worked on V1 products or V1 frameworks. And I eventually had this opportunity uh, to do a job now where I help people with brilliant ideas across the company quickly and cheaply find out how brilliant those ideas are. Like the light bulb pops up. How bright is that? And then if it, if it is truly brilliant, I help them make it real by connecting them with the execs that can that can make these things come along. So can, it's, can I throw, can yeah. I throw something? It's just kind of interesting you brought it up. Uh, so we had an earlier session with Caitlin McCabe, which is uh, Satya's senior director of communications. Yeah. And when you think about or talking to people that they've been with a company for years, like you know, I'm going to 15 years myself. Ever since Satya, you know, got the help, there was this huge cultural shift. And mm -hmm. when he came on board and talked about, like, you know, putting empathy in action, perhaps maybe people that didn't know him would say, okay, uh, we have an RCO coming in and, you know, talk about all this. But yeah. we really see that in action in the past five, six years. And again, it's coming back from, like, you know, he really understanding the word empathy and, you know, how he's just, you know, changing the culture internally and how it's impacting externally with customers and, you know, uh, partners that are interacting with us. This is kind of interesting that you brought it up to. 
Yeah, I, I kind of want to build on that a little bit. So that's it's always been part of the culture of the garage, like what has now been encapsulated as customer obsession in our cultural priorities. But uh, Saya was a fan of the garage before he became CEO. And his first public address to the company and what he does is these monthly Q&A sessions. He actually did it standing in the garage headquarters. And, you know, if uh, in a future where we're able to get back on campus, I hope to be able to show you that spot that he was standing in. And the same with all of your your watchers today. If they come by and I get to give them a tour of the garage, I'd love to show them that spot. Uh, The other thing is, Saya, it's really clear to me that he is deeply empathetic whenever I've had the chance of being in the room with him. The fact that he knows every like he's able to track the emotional state of like every person in the room and give them the right kind of attention as it goes on. It's it's remarkable to see and definitely amazing to be part of a company that is built so much on empathy. So, Ed, when you think about like we're talking about startups, we're talking about, you know, technology, we're talking about, you know, a very inclusive groups of people working together cohesively to develop something. And, you know, I've seen some of the products that the, that have come out of the garage that are now in production. I think Video yeah. Indexer was one of those projects that I, I read up about. Absolutely. What do you see that is working in terms of like the functional program of the garage? And how do you see that bleeding into the Microsoft organization? Yeah, so we we try to create as many opportunities as we as we can to really land on the kind of cultural priorities, cultural attributes of the company, beginning with growth mindset, which leads to things like valuing uh, diverse and inclusive teams, having a one Microsoft perspective, customer obsession, and all of this really leads to this like making a difference. And by having a company wide hackathon, like we just had our seventh annual one. A couple of weeks ago, that look, literally thousands of projects come into this of things that people are passionate about and ways that they feel they will learn something or really make an impact. It's it's fascinating to see. We provide a kind of different type of internship experience that is more like an accelerator where we encourage them to work really deeply with the people they're saw. You know, the people who will use it, the people. Uh, who will buy it, the people who are ultimately going to be served by the technology that they're creating. Programs like our experimental outlet, which allow us to quickly get ideas into the hands of the people who are going to use it and and learn from them. And I also love uh, just figuring out ways to help everybody move their projects forward. And a big, big underpinning of this is understanding like who you're solving problems for, what problems you're solving for them, and how to best use our technical skills to address that. That's a big part of what we're trying to do across the garage. And we see people take these skills back to their day job and employ them every day in what they do. So even if, like our mission, I said, is to create this culture of innovation. It's not to create like the next big thing. We've been lucky to have projects like Video Indexer and Kaizala and Microsoft Launcher that have gone on to become these graduated ideas that are making a big impact. Uh, but really, it's about uh, creating this culture where everybody's taking new ways of working and learning back to their day job. As a microcosm to that, Ali, you know, as a director of the, the Irvine and Denver Microsoft Technology Centers, I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past. 
and now that we're virtual, but there's been this trickle down effect, I think, coming from Redmond and what folks are doing at the garage and in other places in corporate to our technology centers. And we're doing hacks and, and workshops. Now all those things are virtual. What do you see from those engagements with customer in terms of culture and innovation that you just really enjoy? So as you mentioned, you know, MTCs have been really involved uh, with, you know, those hackathons, specifically in our MTC in Boston with the garage team over there. Uh, they have like a very tight uh, and, you know, uh, relationship in terms of, you know, working together. But across the U.S. and worldwide, I mean, that's what we do day in, day out. Uh, one of the things that we saw prior to COVID was that this uh, cultural shift of like, you know, instead of going to the centers and you have this giant data center with servers and, you know, blinking LEDs, let's open up the space and use it as a, you know, a factory room so we can go and hack with the customers and partners. Uh, of course, you know, we started our project in Irvine. Uh, you've seen the pictures. Uh, we can't go there, but I'm super happy that, you know, even when we're done with this COVID and, you know, uh, the challenges that we had, we get back to the regular routine that we had prior to COVID. But getting back to your question, as a human, we cannot learn how to adapt to the change. So wheels haven't stopped, meaning that now we even working more with the customers and partners, but in a virtual format. And uh, that's where you know we can use the technology. So yes, you kind of lose that human to human element, but you can still leverage technologies that are powered by AI to bring all these team members together, you know, as close as possible. And Ed, so and now we're talking about this human component that Ali kind of brought into the mix. And I, I don't, so stole is, a, is a, a very harsh, strong word, but I went onto your blog. I think I reached out to you. It might've been in January or maybe even, maybe even last year, actually. We had to go talk to uh, a chief digital officer focused on innovation in DC. And I had no idea what I was going to bring to the table. Innovation is a big, it's a huge topic. I think I reached out to you. I, I've, I had heard of the garage. I had heard of the great work that you guys were doing. The folks in the field kind of throw it around when it comes to innovation. I reached out to you. You kind of gave me a, a framework. You sent me to your blog. I read a couple of your blogs. I took this framework about, it was uh, fruit, trees, and soil. Yeah, and I yeah. talked about fruit, trees, and soil to this C-level this customer. Can you talk to us about what that means? Because there is a human component, and I think people should hear about it. Yeah, ab absolutely. So when I, I've had this amazing, great fortune that uh, a lot of people want to visit the garage and tour the garage. And as I talk to people who run innovation programs at their own companies, in fact, I was touring this one group of uh, innovation leaders from Canada, and they were all asking me questions from, from different points of view. And I'm like, wow, based on what I told them so far, some of these questions like aren't lining up with what we actually do and what I talked about. And then it just struck me that people view that there are different ways that people view innovation. So some leaders are essentially chartered with, please create for me an innovation as if it's a fruit that they need to like make this juicy fruit that they like take the market and sell on like this perfect fruit. Other people who are innovation leaders are 
uh, asked to create innovation as if it's a tree that can repeatedly produce these fruit. And they're trying to create this tree that's really healthy and, and can do this all the time. Whereas the garage, our focus is more on viewing innovation as soil, as innovation as a culture that is very fertile and seeds can land in and trees can spring up all over the company and bear fruit. And I've come to see innovation as it being important to, to think of it as the entire ecosystem. Like once you have the soil and trees come up and fruit comes up, even the, well, once you think about this, like the fruit that end up like falling off of the tree and not even going to market can spring up other trees. They can, parts of that organic matter end up going into the soil and making the soil uh, more fertile over and over again. And so you're essentially creating this ecosystem. And so being able to invest in the fruit layer, the tree layer, and the soil layer as if it's a portfolio where you're intentionally trying to work on all parts of that in your culture really helps your culture become a lot more innovative at every level. And that's something that uh, it seems like it, it resonated with you. It resonates with these C-suite execs you get to talk to on a regular basis. So yeah, that's the model. I, it actually came from a design perspective from a, a really great creative at Microsoft named uh, Rick Barazza. He talked about design as fruits, tree, soil, and I've, uh, I've applied it to innovation as well. So I want to make sure Rick gets the credit there because very brilliant model. <laughs> Stole. We should we should put the link after you know the the show is published. Yep, I will. And, and Noah Tora, uh, he's a program manager with Customer Success. He would like the link. So uh, thanks for for posting a comment, Noah. So Ed, when you're thinking about so these are high very high level constructs, and this reminds me of a. Can you give me an innovation? Can I have an innovation? What does that look like? It, it's very similar to what I hear about AI. I consistently get customers asking for AI. I want to do AI. This, the, the sentence doesn't even make sense, right? It's there, the approach is like this end object where really there's so much built into that. Do you have any, any stories or experiences in customers not being able to approach this type of innovation sequence or framework and maybe some things that they can do to learn from that, to, to grow it, to really start harvesting the soil, planting the soil? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'll start with a common pattern. A common pattern I see is people like, oh my gosh, we need to create a machine learning solution here or some, some AI solution here. And they go out and uh, they're trying to figure out how much data they need to collect. And they're collecting this data and they build a model and then they build software around the model before they ever even test this idea at all. They're like data can be very expensive to, to have enough data to build this model. And if you end up building the wrong model because you haven't tested it, you're not going in the, in the right direction. And I, uh, I, I remember once hearing this quote, data are people too. And it, I started striking me as, no, actually data are people first. Like it comes down to the individuals that you're often collecting this data from that come in aggregate to how can he help them? And so I'm going to say a sentence here that I think appeals really directly to engineering minds, which is building that machine learning model or really building any technical solution without working with customers first is a premature optimization. So 
it's like, don't like you're just, you're just optimizing early on. You need to spend time in this empathy phase to where you're really getting to know the people you're working with. And I'll talk, talk a bit about that same project mirror HR. I was, I was talking about at the beginning. So this is a team that was the grand prize winner in Microsoft's hackathon 2019. They're helping the families of children with epilepsy. The, leader of, of the team recently came to me and he's like, he's like, Ed, I've decided I don't want to keep growing the numbers of families we're serving. He's like, I want to spend more time investing and providing a really high touch experience with the folks that we have, because I want to provide an amazing experience for them. And they, they do believe that their approach will be to build a machine learning model. One of the things that they're doing is collecting video logs of the parents are these like video diaries. Uh, the parents or caregivers of the children with epilepsy will speak into, into this app and record these logs. That information will then be tied to the biometric data that's collected from monitoring children with sensors on their wrists. Later, that information will be shared with the doctors and other caregivers so that they could have conversations about the insights that are coming out of both of these types of data, the qualitative and the quantitative, and find the triggers that, that are affecting these children. But they're not beginning with collecting all of the data first and having an AI do it. They're beginning with human intelligence. So the fact that they want to have deep, empathetic discussions with people, they are collecting the logs and the members of the team are hand-coding what they see in these logs. As they're doing it, as they're collecting these like log entries or the team calls it diary entries, these diary entries and hand coding it, that information is becoming the data and the ground truth. It's like it begins with human intelligence. They're building empathy. They're having discussions with them. They're reading the logs. These conversations are so deep that they need to shield themselves emotionally and prepare themselves in a resilience standpoint because they're going through something so incredibly personal with these families. But meanwhile, while they're doing that, while they're making connections that are, that are influencing what is in this app that they're creating, they're also gathering the data that will then be used to train the models. And they'll be able to move on this continuum from all human intelligence supported to completely artificial intelligence supported at the other side, going through... Uh, they'll be able to go to, you know, you use human intelligence to update transcripts that the machine learning is updating. And eventually you'll have machine learning that's augmented by human intelligence where machine learning is doing most of the work, but humans are coming in and, and tagging things to eventually as they need to scale out to, you know, the, the 7 million families in the world of children with epilepsy and, and eventually even into adjacent markets, they will be able to they're going to be able to do that by taking this gradual path to it that is based on a foundation of empathy all along the way. Oh, this is this is fascinating, man. I mean, uh, when you think about like, you know, well, this was for a very specific cause, but uh, I can kind of connect this to the similar conversation that I had with one of our customers that they manufacture sensors for type 1 diabetes, like blue, uh, blood glucose monitoring and uh, which you know I'm, I'm using that product myself so i was talking to their r d team members a couple of engineers 
And they were just trying to figure out, you know, how they can use the data and telemetry information that coming from the sensor to make the product better. And one thing that we were discussing, just like, hey, before we even get there, we need to think about that human element of this, the, the emotional impact. Like, you know, if the sensor is faulty and, you know, gives you wrong data, you know, how it's going to impact mentally the person with, you know, type 1 diabetes, right? And this is the part that you guys need to focus more before you get to the, the technical aspect of it. Uh, and back then, I just joke around, and this is just like all science fiction. I so, said, you know, remember Skynet, Terminator? I mean, what was yeah. the biggest issue? Just like there were no uh, inclusion of empathy and, you know, the, the human element and also, you know, things like uh, unconscious bias. And this is why all of these are so important. So AI by itself, it's an easy thing, but it's all these other factors that make this super, super interesting. Yeah, we're just, um, you know, there's this concept of you have to do the things that don't scale first. That's what the founders have to do at, at the beginning. And uh, I think it was Reid Hoffman who first said that, and he's, he's now on our board at Microsoft. But I think about the story from Airbnb. Whoever knew that Airbnb would would go on to have more rooms and capacity than like all of the other hotels in the world combined. <laughs> when it began with these two founders who had literally, as they were trying to understand why their people who were renting out their spaces weren't landing and they would actually go and stay there and couch surf. And they would say, hey, we think higher quality photography is going to help you. We think higher, higher quality photography is going to help you get more bookings. So they went to a community college, learned how to become photographers. Like these are the, the, the founders of this, like, of this tech unicorn now, right? But they would show up themselves, you know, <laughs> knocking on people's apartment doors and say, hey, we're here to take photos. And they were doing that deep empathy work that was needed at the, at the early phase so that later on they would be able to scale their idea. And it's, this was something that really inspired us when we thought about these machine learning approaches is what is the version of doing that thing that doesn't scale in the machine learning? And so, and I'm just thinking about from a business so that we're not having a business discussion. We're having more of an innovation discussion and a culture discussion and a people discussion. How do companies and organizations you know, on a global scale, they're thinking, especially now, they're thinking about the bottom line. We're hearing that, you know, the projects that aren't going to yield revenue or some kind of value ROI metric in the next six, nine, six, nine months are going to get cut. How do you have the discussion around business metrics and the business reasoning when you're not thinking about scale? Right. What, right. That, what does that workflow look like, you think? Yeah, I, I would say a lot of businesses have this problem, which is they either underfund ideas or overfund, right? Like they're like, oh, we're either going to put zero people on it or we're going to put 100 or 200 people on it. Mm -hmm. And how do we right size those investments? Take like basically a lot of inexpensive shots on goal to find out what's going to resonate. So in lean startup terminology, people use this term like, what are the leap of faith assumptions that you have and how can you de-risk all of those? Like, how can you find out the things that are riskiest? I, I've often heard these called death threats, and I love the term because uh, it really mobilizes a group of people to figure out, geez, how do we protect something from all the death threats? 
Like, how do we t- protect an idea from all its death threats? And that's what we try to do is early on find out what are all the things that, what are all the assumptions we're making, if they prove false, are most likely to kill this idea. And then be able to tell leaders like, hey, we're going to make a very small investment early on in terms of people and money, and we're going to systematically de-risk these things so that when you do choose to invest, you're investing in the ones most likely to work. Because what is a bigger waste than over-optimizing, over-investing in something that nobody wants? I have a question for you, Ed. You know, what are your thoughts or, you know, where do you see Facebook's of the world, Google's of the world, Microsoft's of the world, IBM's of the world, kind of coming together. I'm sure we're doing it to some extent, but what is your vision? How do you see, you know, all these innovators in a space of AI and ML, they can do better together to, you know, provide this type of like solution to have even bigger impact? Mm, Like, how do I see us like organizing to have like bigger impact at the the high level? Well, I'll tell you this, I'm, I mostly think about ideas when they're small, but figure out how they eventually become big. And one thing that maybe a, a lot of people following this wouldn't know is all the companies you mentioned, I talk to the people, I have regular conversations with the people who do like a similar job to me, which is like finding those ideas and, and testing them. And we talk about our, our methods with each other and share share what we do. We don't talk about the strategies and, and, and the businesses we're creating, but we talk about this approach and we all believe in taking an approach that is based on empathy. That, that said, we, we have different ways that we go about doing it. And we, like all of our businesses, even though we use technology to help empower the solutions, we all really have different visions and, and missions as companies that just happen to be based in tech as a solution. So how do I see us come together? I think. Uh, one one way I think we all sort of push each other to be better. We share methods with each other. Um, I know uh, something I've really been excited to see. And you at the beginning talked about the changing culture of Microsoft. We've moved to a more and more open company over time, where we figure out the right ways to work with other people in our space who are like we're really. Uh, our the real goal is to like help as many people in the world. So we as Microsoft are we want to enable all people and organizations in the world to achieve more. And sometimes we're able to do that through partnerships with uh, people who the media want to like maybe overexpress as competition when it's really just other parts of the market who who we work with and and can often help us get that mission or vision accomplished. And it's kind of funny because you have a lot of examples in other fields uh, that, you know, these big names are already collaborating for a, a good cause, impacting, you know, the, uh, you know, a certain part of, you know, the, the population. And why not this? And one thing that I'm glad to hear, at least, you know, from what you just shared, that there is a commonality in terms of, you know, putting that human element of empathy in action first before yeah. thinking about the, the technical aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll give the caveat that I am not at all the right person to be a, a spokesperson on our interactions. Absolutely. With yes. So I'm hearing when you talk about, and I know, Ali, you're going to, we talked about this when me and you had our podcast some time ago, this idea of interoperability and this idea of an open 
culture and open open source and the ability to do things at scale, GitHub, and the ability to fork code in a community type of engagement where multiple folks from multiple regions of the world are working together. Is that a challenge, do you think, for organizations to understand or, or to utilize? And if it is, how do you think they can navigate that? How do they get started? I, I add one thing, and then I'm more and I'm uh, glad to hear Ed's thoughts on this, is when we talk about you know the customers that we interact with, again, talking about the open source in general, I think one of the things that we try to help them change the culture is the notion of uh, inner source. Because within the company, within the org, that those teams, they should feel comfortable with at least share idea among themselves first and kind of see that type of uh, cultural change before they start, you know, going out and be able to collaborate openly with, you know, even their competitors. So I think that's the part that, you know, we have a lot of organizations that they're well advanced into that uh, notion of inner source, but we have a lot of other customers, even at the, the enterprise level, that they're not there yet. I mean, it's like teams within that organization, they're still competing with each other, right? Uh, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a journey that we need to continue helping our customers and, you know, partners that we are dealing with. And of course, you know, the notion of GitHub and, you know, why Microsoft acquired GitHub, it wasn't just like, hey, because this is the biggest repository to store code. There is just, you know, that cultural aspect of it that uh, can help us do a better transformation, both in business and human. I think the inner source, like re really anybody in the company can look at the, the source code that anyone else in the company has, you know, with some extent, exceptions of uh, tented projects like that's been a cultural goal internally for a while that keeps getting more and more open and when we had our first global hackathon in the garage it was really fun talking to all those teams and figuring out how do we get the source code open up so that hackers could build on other people's source code and, and can write stuff in there and i remember um like Sai was on stage he's like if you can't get access to source code like let me know we want to we want you to get access to it and from the beginning made it the default in the hackathon that at this tool that we have that manages our hackathon, which we kind of see as a combination of like LinkedIn meets GitHub for hackers uh, and every hackathon that we have and every hack project that people have, like they, people put their projects in there and we automatically provision for them uh, repositories and we provision them for them open. So everybody across the company can look and see the code of anyone else that they're hacking on. So many of the best projects come when a few people working in adjacent spaces see what others are hacking on and, and decide to merge it together, uh, merge their ideas together. And so it's amazing what happens when you have a company that's working on this internal shared source and working with the, the GitHub team since we've acquired them has been amazing and in understanding how we can integrate GitHub and what we do with hackathons and how people can move their projects forward. I'd say there's so, what, one other thing to add is uh, there's so much passion people have within our company for open sourcing what they're creating. We intentionally have to slow them down because we don't want them to open source <laughs> abandonware. That doesn't do good for anyone. So I want, I want everybody knowing that like I want there to be a history and a track record that every time we've open source, that every time we open source something, it's something that we're supporting. We're taking PRs. We're really building a community around them. We're not just like 
we're not just shipping code and walking away from it and moving on to something else that if we do open source something, we're doing that because we're trying to build community and engagement around that. And it's something that we mean to support and work with you on. And so understanding that that culture of building community around open source projects externally is always something that to invest in and build. I think this follows one of those power laws that like the number one project being supported to the number two is like, you know, like 50% like fewer contributions. And it, uh, it drops down like that, like uh, open source has short head and long tail. And we want people to like focus on creating projects that they intend to be in the short head. It's kind of interesting. I think we can talk to Ed on and on for hours, but <laughs> Derek, how are we doing on times? And I know we passed our half an hour standard timing, but what's going on over there on LinkedIn? Yeah, so we got uh, a couple a couple nice comments. We got some people uh, watching and listening in. I think if we could tie it back into... So Noah just posted a comment. Within the healthcare interoperability and in the context of innovation, how do companies address HIPAA uh, and privacy data, PII privacy data? Mm. Uh I'm not like a Microsoft spokesperson on on healthcare. I know what I what I run into, which is uh, that teams that are doing stuff in the, in the healthcare space, building on Fire Server, uh, which is an open source offering that our healthcare team has put out there, really helps people ensure that they're set up for doing the right things around privacy and not exposing the PII of of projects. I imagine this especially comes up in this scenario of uh, helping families of children with epilepsy. In this case, it is not Microsoft who is making this project. This project is actually being made by a nonprofit that employees of Microsoft are contributing to this nonprofit's solution by creating a, a proof of concept. So I am not directly a part of that and can't talk to, can't talk to it directly. But it is something that is very, very important to cover and that the information does need to be collected in the right way by the right organizations that are respecting the family's privacy and at the same time collecting enough information that could be used to train these machine learning models and that are appropriate for down the road when applying for clinical trials will be you know, validatable for uh, clinical trials by, I believe it's FDA in the U.S. and uh, equivalent agencies outside of the U.S. Did that answer the question? I think it did. Hopefully, and if it doesn't, Noah, we're going to go ahead and post uh, information. Uh, you can go ahead and send a message out to, to Ed um, and ask some more questions. So I know we only have two minutes scheduled for our 45-minute discussion. Any lasting remarks for for around incubation or innovation or things that businesses can do to, to get started? Yeah, I, I really think it's adopting practices that promote empathy. I once heard somebody make, make this comment that there's nobody, there, like there's no company in the world that says like, we don't put the customer first or we don't put the, the user first or we don't put people first in some way, right? But I could think of many companies out there that I do not, that, when I'm their customer, I do not feel like I'm being put first. And the difference is what systems and culture you put in place in your company. 
Like, are you really putting the right listening systems in place and tying this to the inner loop of your product creation process and your product support process and so on? And are you really putting listening to people at the center of it and in what you're creating and, and, and how you're sharing it? And if you're not, you're going to have a much harder time. Like if you create all the rest of the system, if you put finances at the center and listening systems as a bolt on, it's going to be uh, it's going to be really hard to do that connection. So really build your processes, your practices, your culture around putting the people at the center. And I, I have a, a whole post on this that I call uh, data are people first. That that goes into a list of ten practices that early companies can follow that uh, that help put that this at the center. So I'm sure we'll be able to share this with your viewers. Ed, one one last uh, ask or question: uh, Do you have any recommendation for a book that you've read or you know you recommend for our audience that specifically touches the empathy in action in the space of AI and machine learning that you can share? It's funny. Any anybody who knows me who's uh, listening to this is probably laughing right now because people joke that a conversation with me is is uh, they call it the EdSE book club. Uh, I I tend to, I tend to like recommend uh, so many different books. So like, oh geez, how do I pick one? Um, whew, let me. I didn't want to put you on spot. You can just post it offline after this session. But I think uh, definitely yeah. be interesting to hear about. Yeah, I'm going to. Sh I'll share one that is a that it, like sort of builds a system here, and it's a. Oh, actually, I, you know what? I, I'm just going to go with uh, Gift Constable's books. So, Gift Constable has these two books, talking to humans and testing with humans, that are these brilliant, slim volumes that walk through it. That walk through an amazing process of of building empathy from like a story perspective, and they're filled with cartoons, and they're they're just amazing. So. Gift Constable, I, I had the fortune of uh, being a speaker on a panel that he was leading uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm going to feel uh, similarly fortunate to be interviewed by the two of you. But uh, Gift Constable's thinking around this is great. So find, find his books. They're amazing. Hey, this was really awesome, Ed. And we really appreciate you carving out the time. Uh, I hope folks kind of look at some of the wisdom you have on your on your blog and they connect with you because the way that you approach things, very novel, very progressive, and they truly are very good frameworks for how we approach technology in the world. So thank you for coming on. I know we're a little bit over. I hope everyone enjoyed this discussion and please follow us on LinkedIn if you haven't already. Ali, I think we have some fun stuff ahead of us in the future here. Yeah, uh, is there anything that you can share with the audience? Besides that, we're gonna have Ed back for more episodes. Yeah, well, we, we are doing a, a, a manufacturing series coming up and how Microsoft is transforming manufacturing businesses. And we all know that manufacturing is not just manufacturing, it's distribution, it's CPG, it's sales, it's production. There are a lot of things that go into it. And we're going to be having some really awesome guests to talk about that. So with that, thanks for watching. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ali. We'll talk to you all later. Well, thank Have you. a great thank Tuesday. And be safe. Cheers. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us in the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at 
DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter, Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas, views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.